0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we are continuing to record this podcast remotely for the safety of our guests and our team. So on with the show. And Welcome to the second part of Craig Revel Horwood's White Wine Question Time. If you haven't already, please do have a listen to last week's show where Craig shared how Strictly is working hard to adapt to our strange new COVID world before coming back on our screens this autumn, how he was slapped in the face by an 80-year-old fan because of his rudeness, the merits of tough love and why his decision to go under the knife has changed and transformed the way he looks and more importantly feels about himself, So this week we're picking up the conversation, talking risk-taking, the price of fame and his greatest lessons in love. So sit back and pop your cork as we pour our next glass and serve up Craig's next question. big breaks came as a trumpet playing all singing, all dancing drag queen you called Lavish, who you killed off because she became, well frankly, too successful and it saw you pack up your bags in Paris and move to London with nothing but a £1,000 to your name to start from scratch. Now now you've told me before that you're never afraid of failing and landing in the gutter so what I wanted to know from you is when else have you taken those kind of risks and have they always paid off?
2: I didn't want lavish to take over and rule my life I you know treated myself as a jobbing actor and I wanted to make sure that I had a whole host and variety of characters rather than just the one people sort of wanted at the time and I thought I'm the one actually in control of this and yeah I used to finish a show called Sugar Babies and that was in 1987 and after the show I would uh, get dragged up I would take my tap shoes, my trumpet, my backing tracks, which were all tape then, and, you know, all my backing track tapes and say, play these in this order, and my own microphone because it made my voice sound a bit higher and more feminine than any other sort of microphone. So I'd I'd go on to town with all of that. But, I mean, I was – she was becoming sort of too popular and taking over my life, sort of a little bit like Keith Lemon, if you like, and people don't know his real name. You know, that's a character – that Lee Francis plays and uh and it does get confusing you know so it's not until I mean that his character had become very popular sort of like mine had in Australia and lavish so I decided to you know get rid of her and yeah it meant losing money it meant all of those things but sometimes you have to make those decisions in life where uh if you're at a crossroads, you've got to choose a a path and you've got to choose the one that you're happy to go down as much as I didn't know. What was at the end of that road? I could see very clearly when I was at the fork or the crossroads where lavish was going. And I felt like she, the character was taking me away from my development as not only a person, but an actor and everything else that I wanted in life. And I thought, uh, I really don't sort of want that. Paul O'Grady went through it with Li- Lily Savage. Yeah. I mean, to a much bigger extent. I mean, I literally only played lavish for two years around the clubs in Australia. So I wasn't the nation's sweetheart or anything like that. But I just knew if I continued down that road, that's all I'd be known for. And I felt like I had a lot more to give the industry, not only the industry, but myself as a developing artist. So uh, sometimes it's good to leave. To leave, uh, for instance, uh, East Enders. You know, when you're ahead mm. of the game rather than 30 years on, because yeah. you end up being typecast. You see, so you have to be brave. I-, I chose the road where I couldn't see the end. I chose a sort of just um, a door and. I opened that door and then other things happened, you know, like they do. And I think people in life have to be brave. And, you know, where they say uh, one door closes, another one opens is totally true. Uh, That in life is such a great saying. And I didn't understand it as a kid, but, uh, and everyone used to say it, you know, uh, because it does help you get over that rejection or, or whatever it was, you know, because we don't all get every job that we go for. And sometimes, you know, and I have to take, you know, a lot of, literal uh literary criticism from my editor you know so there's a lot of critiques out there so you know yeah. you have to adapt and change oh no i don't like this character i don't like the development. moment can you change that you know so it's, it's constant and it's like any job that you're in or anything that you do for yourself you know i'm constantly self-criticizing and i think that's sort of good you know it, it wakes you up to yourself and you sort of you know, you have to know that you're on a journey, on a path of learning and that's what life is about. You know, it's very short and you've got to, I think, achieve as much as you possibly can in every single day.
1: We all, we've all, we all had a, a chance to reflect and I'm much like you, Craig, I run through life and I don't really give myself time to have a pause for thought. And I've definitely yeah. done that in lockdown. And I think all of us have. And sometimes the fear of failure will stop us trying. And I think for me, yeah. I've always managed to overcome that fear and just try it anyway. And I've never regretted it. Even when it hasn't worked out, there's been lessons in it that have later served me well. And you've never yeah. been afraid to stand up to people that could trample on you. I mean, I'm going to use Cameron Mackintosh as an example yeah. because I thought this was... Mm-hmm. A real David and Goliath moment for you. You had just started out as... Uh, it was probably a good way to describe it, right? Because for people listening, Cameron McIntosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber, between them, probably own the West End. I, I can't think of any two bigger bigger figures within that industry. And if you if you fall out with one of them, you're cutting off probably 50% of the marketplace in terms of opportunities yeah. to work.
2: Yeah, I did. I was working for Cameron for seven years and it came about that uh he wanted me to choreograph a show called the witches of eastwick which was a new one coming out at that time and uh i wanted to get a co-choreographic credit because i I was always an assistant and i really wanted to make it in the world as a choreographer in my own right and i said could i have a co-choreographic credit and cameron turned around and said no and then I went okay why uh, if uh, because uh well they did say it's like handing over the baton Craig it was between Bob Avian and myself and of course I've worked with Bob quite a lot and I love him as a choreographer he's gorgeous absolutely adorable man and um I'd worked under his umbrella for a long time and I just wanted you know uh in the back of the program just for it to say co-choreographed by uh and he didn't want to do that because number one i think he wanted to this was you know bob avon's swan song if you like and then i would take the baton and then run with it in later years but i'd already opened a show as choreographer in the west end for spend 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 which i received uh, a nomination for an olivia award and so i thought i really felt the need to not assist anymore. So I just mm-hmm. made the decision. I said, okay, well, then I have to leave the project. So I did. And then um, then one month later, I thought, he'll come back. He'll come back. It'll be all right, because I've done all the auditions. He'll come back. And uh, he called me back into the office. And I said, oh, I'm going to get it now. I'm going to get the choreographic thing. And it quite, I don't know, full of promise and hope. And uh, went into Cam's office and he said, "Okay, sit down. I just want you to know, uh, before anything else does, before the posters come out tomorrow, that um, your contemporary Stephen Meir will be co-choreographer on *Witches of Eastwick*. And I went, "Okay, thank you very much, Cam. And uh, I left the double doors of the Macintosh Empire and fell directly into the dance gutter. But that sort of helped me in a way it made me stronger and cameron did me a huge favor to be honest because then i was forced to go it alone and had to prove myself by myself and i think sometimes when you do hit the bottom deck you know there are stairs to climb and you're a lot more well armed than you would be uh earlier on in your career so it was great and out of that I got a job obviously I had to give up my mobile phone at the time because I couldn't afford it I suddenly the money stopped everything stopped and I had to try and put myself on the map as a choreographer in my own right and uh, and that led to a huge door opening which was a sort of small door it looked like a small door but it was actually the biggest door that I was ever going to walk through. It was a bit like Alice in Wonderland where you open a tiny door, then suddenly you come across the queen of hearts. you <laughs> know, And, uh, and that's sort of what happened. And this was a Chichester festival theater. And I opened this very small door and then suddenly I did this huge, grand, amazing show in a very small space called pal Joey, and then got, Rave, rave, rave reviews for it, and then other producers were talking about me. And then suddenly, I was on a treadmill to becoming uh, an international choreographer. And without Cameron's boot out the door, which you can't understand at the time, but if you trust the universe, doors will open. And it taught me a valuable lesson to accept. You know your your fate, and then try and help yourself to something, open another door, and and say yes, even if you sort of mean if you don't think you can do it. You know, I mean, I've said things. People said, "Oh, Craig, will you um present?" You know, like a, a, a big thing, and I thought, "Oh gosh, I've never done that before. Or read auto cues or being a presenter like that." But I just went, "Oh, all right." And then, of course, you panic. You think, oh, can I do it? But then I pushed myself into situations all the time. When I first directed opera, I was scared to death because it's in a foreign language, obviously, uh, and I had to yeah. really study it. Uh, th- there was a lot of things I say yes to that really challenged me, and I think the more scared and fearful you are of it, uh, the better it is for you because you then have another string to your bow. And not only that, you learn something. Whether it be a failure, yes, I've failed miserably but I've taken the responsibility on and I've had a good time doing it you know and the press can say what they like I did a wonderful show called The Beautiful and Damned in the West End and that was part of West End's bloodbath and this was my first ever directing (laughs) slash choreography and this was the actual year that I got Strictly Come Dancing believe it or not and it's because of my angst for that show that I ended up the character on the TV that people see today. <laughs> isn't it mad? <laughs> you know, it is, though, isn't it? It's they all connect. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And it is, as you say, a learning curve. And I think that's really important to push yourself out there. Learn from your mistakes. And some people do, some people don't, but you eventually do, I think. And try and, you know, if, if you're scared of something, maybe challenge your fear of that. And, so, and and in this life, there is actually nothing to fear. It's a made-up, it's a made-up emotion. Fear. What is the worst that can happen? Nothing. It's crazy. I think you know you've got to you've got to fail in order to succeed. And I think understanding failure is part and parcel of success. There's a lot of multi-millionaires out there who um, made their money on the stock market, for instance, and then lost the whole lot. But then, because they're fearless. They make it all back again and mm. don't panic or worry about it there's a solution to everything and my job as a director is to be a problem solver and basically that's what you're just a detective constantly and you know giving people solutions that they can't see i think you know when you're in something it's really difficult to see the outside clearly unless you you might say to someone oh this is my problem and then that friend or that person around you says oh this is how you can solve it and there's something you been racking your brain, but never thought of. It's crazy because Mm. sometimes people from the outside can see a solution. And that's what I figure it is. Yeah, you can just, you can that everything in life, you know, is a problem to be solved. And I think if you have fun, you know, finding solutions, which I do, and that's why I sort of love, I call it the dance gutter. I love sort of falling in there, getting mucky and dirty, and then, you know, rinsing off and getting on with it. Because it gives me a bit more of a fight, but I feel a bit more human that way. I think if I was just on cloud nine, I'd be living in planet zero. You know, I would just be—you um, wouldn't be learning <laughs> That's anything. True. You know, and then the fall, of course, is even further. You know, but you have to understand that. You know, you can't all, you're when they're it, on the wheel of fortune, when you're up in life, there's only one way and that's down. But you, under, you have to understand that the wheel of fortune keeps turning around and, around and around and around and around and it doesn't stop. So, no matter where you land on the wheel of fortune, you have to come down in order to go up. So, as long as I think if you understand that, uh, you'll be a much more uh, interesting person and also a level headed person. I think that's important too in this business because people can believe their own publicity, you know, or hype. And if you just simply see it as that, then that's all it is.
1: Well, you put it into a healthy place for sure. Um, Yeah. Talk to me about one of the earliest, biggest risks that you took. Um, I I can't remember how old you were, but tell me about Mr. X and your passage to dance uh, after cutting a deal with Mr. X
2: yeah cutting a deal with mr x that was an interesting part of my life i i left home when i was 15 and a half and, which sounds really early and when i see 15 and a half year olds nowadays at 55 i go oh my god they're nothing but children uh i've yeah. grown up i had a job i wanted to leave the family home anyway my father was a alcoholic and uh family life was just horrendous because he was really abusive um, mentally abusive physically abusive you know and just drunk all the time and well he had alcoholism you know which obviously is a disease and um that was difficult to live with dance was getting me away from that and out of the house and that's why i loved it so much because it was a form of escape uh but i decided to i had an offer actually because not that I needed money. I needed dance classes. I didn't know how to progress any further. And I had an offer from an older guy called Mr. X who was yeah double my age but offered me a trip around the world to see amazing shows and do all of that. And he said if I went away with him, he would pay for my dance classes when I got back to Melbourne. And that's exactly what happened. And that was the last time I saw him. I knew what was on offer. I knew what I had to do, and it wasn't anything untoward. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, I didn't shout about it, I did it on the quiet, if you like. And a lot of people, I know when it came out in News of the World, you know, that reputable paper that was of yesteryear. And I wanted to tell it from my point of view, and that's why I wrote the book, because, you know, I was called a rent boy, I was called all of these things. I was not standing on street corners or along a wall, you know, with my thumb out and a price tag around my neck. You know, it wasn't that at all. It was literally a sugar daddy who said, oh, you know, I'll take you to all these wonderful places in the world and then you will fly as a dancer and I will pay for your tuition in Melbourne. And I went, "Okay, that sounds like a really good deal to me. So we worked out how we're going to do it how uh you know how the um how the dance class is going to work and how it's going to be paid for and all of that and then i went away and had a fantastic and enlightening time and there was nothing for me untoward and it's not like it's not dissimilar i say to you know a girl sort of getting an engagement ring from a fella and then dumping him and keeping the ring you know what i'm saying so you know she could flog the diamonds on and then you know, paper dance classes that way if you want to.
1: Because he was a local TV celebrity, wasn't he? He was a TV host or something in Australia.
2: Yeah. And yeah, he
1: wanted exactly. to take you around the world and said, I will educate you on this kind yeah. of passage around the world. I'll take you to Broadway. I'll take you to the West End. And he did all of those things. And it, yeah. was both an, it was an education. But the deal was, you sleep with me while that's happening. And then after that, you never saw each other again, did you?
2: No, that was it. It was exactly as per contract. And I didn't have to do anything untoward either. <laughs> you know, it was um, it was quite an easy thing. And plus, he was a really nice guy and a friend. So um, I was lucky. And yeah, he was older. Yeah, I slept with him. And yeah, I got my dance classes. But that it was as per contract, and that's how it went. I mean, people at home can think of me what they will. I don't really care. You know, but uh, we all do things, <laughs> don't we, to get ahead in that way.
1: The story came out, and I would imagine that you thought, "Oh God, this is you know." Once, once something like some a newspaper like the News, news of the World starts sniffing around or something like this, you don't you have no control over the narrative. But actually, yeah. I remember at the time when the story came out, nobody really. Gave a hoot, Craig, because no,
0: you no, kind I of know. went...
1: Yeah, I <laughs> did it. As, you, as we've just talked about it now, so probably yeah. the fear of it coming out was greater than the actuality. And everyone just thought, well, so what, that's your business, consenting adults, yeah. you know?
2: Yeah, exactly. So um, it didn't really bother me, but at least I could put it in my own words that way, you know, by giving the story to News of the World rather than fishing around and trying to find untruths. I mean, I did sort of... I cut the headlines out because they were quite funny. I mean, I, I sort of, News of the World... Have make, <laughs> Well, they're just hilarious. They must sit in the office and go, oh, this would be funny. But they don't realise that it could be destroying someone's life. But I can understand, you know, mm-hmm. them sitting in an office all shouting things, Or oh, what can the headline for this be? How are we going to sell papers? You know, but if you read between the lines and if you actually, you know, go beyond the headlines and actually read the articles, in most cases, uh, the headlines are never really true. (laughs) But there is always a grain of truth in the article itself, because there has to be, you know. So uh, it was sort of cool to be able to get the book out there and talk about it in my terms, rather than uh, other people that were selling stories on me, you know, like old PAs, Mm. um, you know, people, family, my father was selling stories. My, you know, it was just crazy. So, I just thought I've got to do something about this, and that's when, of course, all balls and glitter came out. And then, of course, I had bom- I was because I announced everything, every skeleton that I thought was in my closet. Uh, I thought I should just put out there. And of course, you know, I was on television at the time with BBC on strictly on a very family friendly show, Strictly Come Dancing. Yes. And I thought mm, this could be a problem. But you know, the bee just said, look, this is your life and it's your story. You know, what comes of it, comes of it. You know, and you know, they really can't have a say in that way. So it was sort of good. And people, you're right, actually just turned around and said, Oh, well, okay, that's interesting, but anything else? <laughs> it became old news very quickly. And in fact, I thought I was very lucky. And plus I was very level headed. As a kid, I was very grown up. You know, at 18, I sort of knew what I wanted knew how to get it, knew it wouldn't affect me, knew what the deal was and could handle myself quite well. You know, I think my certainly my dance teachers were uh, really good with me in that way, you know, because I became very independent very, very quickly and it's something I needed to do. It's a young person's industry and it's like supermodels in that mm. way, you know, You're beautiful. You're young. Everyone thinks you're impressionable. I was very lucky that I had a very level head and was taught by my ballet teachers to be level headed, to be earthed, to question things, to make my own decisions. You know, and actually just putting a pair of tights on and a dance support belt is For the first time, not an easy thing to do. You've got to be brave to have that thing rammed up your backside and then put a pair of tights on and (laughs) walk into a room. And I took the plunge. I thought, yeah, I'm brave. I'm going to do it. Boom, and I did, and I never looked back. (laughs) You know, I mean, a lot of dancers, especially male dancers, when they're going to put their first dance support on, never talk about that. I've never heard anyone really talk about it, but it is quite daunting because. It's quite a surgical-looking thing. <laughs> and if you've never seen one before, you go, it goes where? <laughs> but um,
1: Explain it for those that haven't seen it.
2: Basically, it's a thong. It's, yeah, footballers wear them, but they have an open back, so the back elastic goes around the cheeks of your bum. But in dance, because you're wearing yeah. white tights, everything has to be held uh, out the way and in a beautiful mound rather than seeing any shaping, any you know, edges, if you like, they blur the edges for wearing uh white, you know, tights that, have, of course, pulled and rammed up your bottom. Of course, when you see one of these things, <laughs> the front of it looks really surgical. It's got a, a three-inch waistband as well and a piece of, you know, uh material that just goes as, you know, uh, you would imagine, a thong. And uh it's quite... Uh, you have to do a deep clean in second to get into it darling by that i mean you've got to sort of spread your legs squat and get into it and then and then put your tights on so. <laughs> <laughs> but they, are, they they take some getting used to but then you feel like then you feel like you can't dance without it it's a funny thing ballroom dancers won't wear them yeah <laughs> no no they don't have to wear Maybe they because not wear, well they're not wearing tights so you know most of the ballroom stuff yeah. is not like super super duper tight you know and if it is it's uh in a way that it's covered up with something (laughs) so yeah but um certainly in a lycra all in one you need some sort of support on but uh you sort of get used to it and it makes you dance better there you go
1: We talked slightly about some of the costs of fame. And there you know, there is that famous saying in the movie, fame costs, and right here is where you start paying. And I just wondered yeah. for you, because you became mainstream famous very late in life. What have been the costs of fame for you and when did you start paying?
2: I started well I answer the second part of the question first. I started paying from the very next day that I went out on the street. And that were there were people <laughs> literally recognizing me i went oh my god i'm being recognized like by truck drivers like screaming hurling numbers at me out of trucks and and people at bus <laughs> stops all staring at me and then shouting things like oh or whatever you know it was like it was quite <laughs> bizarre it was really weird and i thought oh this is interesting and fun for a day Uh, because I came home and go, oh, my God, I'm being recognised. And this is only after one episode of Strictly back in May of 2004. And then uh, and the cost of celebrity, I think, is enormous. You give up your anonymity, and that is really important to a lot of people. Uh, Mm -hmm. The thing I probably dislike the most is the fact that you can't, do what you want to do in public I couldn't go to a nudist camp for instance or if I did it would have to be you know like completely inside somewhere <laughs> and then everyone signing in an, and you know an NA or whatever NDA, an NDA. Uh, yeah, NDA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you lose you lose actually the fact your freedom in a way you lose a sense of, you lose that sense of freedom, but, you know, I always think because I have lost that and I can't see any good in being a celebrity, that I think celebrity for me is a, is allowing myself to then work for charities. I think that's the only thing I could see as a celebrity that is worth it, uh, because I've been given a platform on which to speak or stand and speak. And if I can help people raise money for charities that need it with that celebrity, then that does some good. You know, but what's more important, uh, giving back to the community, I think is sort of what, what I do is give that back to the community in exchange for a couple of selfies here and there. People talk to me on the street. I sort of learned to live with it. I became, I did, I have to say, be, I became, I felt I became aggressive in the beginning because I wasn't used to it. And I was scared of just total strangers coming up to me. And I found that weird because uh, do I know you? You know, you end up sort of saying that. and. um Mm-hmm. And sometimes at a mistake. Sometimes people in the street think they actually know you from a party or um, some people say, oh, no, you run that bar down there. I went, no, 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 I don't do any of that, darling. I'm on a show called Strictly Come To Us. And then they kick themselves, of course. But, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, there have been funny times, but I've learned to live and deal with it. It has been, you know, 17 series and a long time, you know, that I've been used to it. Uh, In lockdown, i have forgotten about it. I went to the petrol station and I had to pay for the petrol. And they went, oh, my God, it's Craig hot. I said, I'm wearing glasses, a mask and a hat. How did you know? Oh, we could tell. We could just tell. It's like, oh, my God. Sometimes (laughs) there's no escaping it. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, it does a lot of good for the world. And, you know, all all the people that watch Strictly are really, really lovely. They're all, you know, genuine fans. And... And they've come, in the first couple of years, it was difficult because they were all abusing me. But I think they've got my sense of humour now, which is rather nice. And it's much nicer on the streets. I think, you know, you become sort of part of the national psych. And, I, and that's sort of what it's yeah. been like. Because I don't I don't deviate from that on TV. I don't have my own game show. I don't have my own, the Craig Revel Horwood Hour. I don't have any of that. I just literally do, strictly... And that is it. All the rest of my work is through theatre or film and stuff like that. So, or um, ballet or opera, you know, so I'm very diverse and very lucky. And I think that sort of has pigeonholed me into one sort of experience. Now, obviously, I'd love to branch out and do a bit more in TV. And especially now that theatres are closed, obviously. So Mm. this is an advertisement. If anyone has any good ideas (laughs) for a one-man show, darling, I'm there, ready to go. But, um you know it is uh, one of those things but uh, i but celebrity is good uh only because of the charity thing summing up and uh i wouldn't advise anyone to want to become famous that
1: surprises me craig because you handle it so well and you i mean you wear it well and so i actually thought that you might have had more of a kick from it than it sounds like you have
2: no i don't really i think it's a uh, it's part of my job now and it's and I think new people around me have to get used to that as well you know I did have a boyfriend uh that couldn't handle the public side of it he would shy away from it hated the attention uh didn't want anyone looking at us while having dinner and you know meeting people is really really difficult in that way I mean with Jonathan he'd never been exposed to it of course who is my fiance now and uh And he's really good with people. You know, he allows it to happen. He sits back, he watches. You know, I always try and take the selfie myself. But I'm very lucky that I've got a very normal life as far as that goes. And and Jonathan accepts it, you know, for what it is. Some people can handle it, some people can't. But it comes with the territory. It comes with the job. I mean, most actors, film actors, would love to just hibernate, learn their lines and become new people on the screen. But... Uh, they don't like going into real life. They don't like the reality of what their Mm. job entails. You know, your movies go to millions of people worldwide. You're going to be famous. You know, if you're Johnny Depp, you can't walk outside the house. That's going to be the reality of it. And don't come into the business thinking that that won't happen. You know, uh, sometimes it doesn't happen for a lot of people because they don't make it. Publicly, you know, you can have, but there's a lot of theatre people that can walk out on the street quite happily because in the theatre, you're not, you're not on TV, you're not known by the masses, you're known by theatre goers. You have a eclectic sort of group of fans, which is very very nice outside the stage door. And plus, on stage, you're wearing wigs, you're wearing makeup, you're wearing costumes, you're wearing padded bras you're wearing you know you're changing everything about your body before you come out the stage door so it's quite easy to slip out the stage door and not be noticed but um certainly people like madonna you know people that are hugely famous that have made it their ambition to become famous rich and famous in that way um it is going to be tough but some people love it some people don't i don't i'm not in love with it i just think it's a necessity and it's just something and i think you should be friendly with it i think people are fans they pay the money to come and see you and i think you should acknowledge that and uh listen to them and that's why i do all my own signings i do my own um you know answering all my fan letter i do all of that stuff myself because i think it's important yeah yeah i do and i think it's important to know what people are thinking i mean obviously i get lots of opinions in there because I'm so opinionated myself, but but I sort of like that I always say, thank you for your opinion. It's a very strong one, but you know, I admire that. (laughs) Keep up the good work. Here's a signed photograph, darling, and I hope you frame it in a beautiful frame.
1: Can we talk romance? Because... Yeah. You and I have had many a long, long chat into the wee small hours about matters of the heart. You're about to get married for the second time. And I just wondered what have been your biggest lessons in love and who have been your greatest teachers?
2: Uh, My greatest teachers are the ones that have dumped me and given me the reasons why because <laughs> le- I have learned lessons from really? that to be honest yeah because I thought well maybe you know it does take two as they say to tango and I think it's really important to listen to the other person's side of the story or why things fell apart because then you can help understand yourself a little bit better I think understanding yourself is the most important thing and learning to love yourself before you try and love someone else I think some points I was desperate just to be with someone. I didn't really care who they were as long as I had someone to uh, go to, you know, and that's wrong, and I wasn't loving myself. So it wasn't until I started loving myself that, of course, I met uh, and being happy being single and adoring being single that I fell in love with someone. Uh, You know, I wasn't expecting that, and they always say that happens. But, of course, you know, the first time around was different to this... Well, the second and the third time round, really. Uh, The first time round sort of ended up in uh, a marriage, obviously, because uh, we were young, wanted kids and all of that sort of stuff. But then uh, that didn't work out because... uh, But that was with Jane,
0: wasn't
2: it? Yeah, Jane fell in love with someone else. And then she got married to them, you know, and and ended up having children with him, which is absolutely fine. Uh, And then I fell in love with Lloyd, and then uh, that happened and that was a, you know, 12 year relationship mm. and that went wrong because he decided he wanted to change his life entirely, which I didn't understand, which he didn't communicate, yeah. which I've written extensively about. But, mm. um, Oh, you were like,
1: enormously at the time, Craig, didn't it?
2: Yeah, it did. It did. Nulled on me really for 10 years to be honest afterwards yeah. but and that's probably why other relationships didn't really work out and this one I am t- I feel totally free of that particular relationship I think you know when you end a relationship or it finishes you sort of have to bury the person in that way I mean you've got to grieve them and I think mm-hmm. it's good to sort of bury them and then if you bump into the game then reinvent your relationship with them, you know, to a form of friendship, if you can. Some people just simply can't. But I yeah. have certainly uh, reignited a friendship with Jane. I certainly, I did think I could reignite a relationship with Lloyd and went on holidays with him, did all of that. But it was actually still hurting me. So I thought, I'm going to protect myself here. And not do that sort of thing. And then hopefully can reinvent something in the future. I mean, we're talking, you know, ages ago for that. But um, it wasn't until I started, you going a series of ones that just completely bombed, you know. And for various reasons, I'm away a lot. I'm on tour a lot. Um, I'm really busy. And, and it was just difficult, you know, meeting someone that would... Number one, like the lifestyle. Number two, like the celebrity part of it. Uh, number three, perhaps sort of following you and stuff like that it is an invasion of their privacy and they're not used to that, which I understand. And um, and then sort of not giving up on yourself, but learning to enjoy being single and not letting people judge you for being single. I think there's so much pressure in society for people to have to be with someone and then no one can understand why you're not. And I think that's difficult for single people who like being single, because we're all born in this world alone and we'll all die alone. You can guarantee that. And, uh, And you have to, if you understand that, then you are here alone. But you make friends, you make acquaintances, you have family, And if you don't have family, you create one naturally like I did in London with the heartbreakers. You know, when I lived in a shared house for five years, they became my family. They became Mm. the people I fought with. They became the people I love. They became the people that told me off when I was bad or praised me when I was good or did something wonderful. And they're the people I celebrated with. They're the people I went through uh, loss of life with. Uh, They're the, the people that... You know, we're my connected family in this country. And I think, you know, if, if you can learn to be alone and learn to live with yourself and can still be motivated, you don't need someone else. Uh, if someone else comes along in your life like Jonathan has that complements it, then that's a fantastic thing to celebrate. And that's why we're getting married, because we want to celebrate, you know, the fact that we love one another. And not only that, that we want to spend the rest of our lives together. So uh that's nice and i so never who thought that who? was ever gonna happen is it you no jonathan asked me and he asked me in tasmania when we we're out oh. in australia because he loves tasmania <laughs> and it is beautiful and he loves like does he? Natural... it's yeah, such an like... odd
1: quirky little country isn't it
2: yeah but jonathan's quite odd and quirky in that way i mean he's you know, he loves Australian plants. He studied them at Kew and worked at Kew for three years, you know, and is a horticulturalist. So his his interest lays in Australian plants and wildlife and all sorts of stuff. So that sort of opened me up. And that was a nice world to walk into with him. And then, uh, of course, he sort of was going to ask the question, was really nervous about it, and had a ring made up that was made of red gum, which is where I you know, where I grew up in a Ballarat, where I lived. So he got my sister to source that. Then he had the made and stuff. But so was sort of a bit scared to ask me. But um, he wanted to ask, because um, we were looking, you know, the. Um, platypus and all of that sort of stuff and they're elusive creatures darling and two percent of people have actually seen them in the wild in Australia and I thought there's no hope. I remember sitting on the bank of a river waiting for four hours, no glass of champagne, not a glass glass of water even. <laughs> and a two-hour cycle ride to this place to look at them. I said, right, that's it, I'm going home. He said, oh, I want to go down and look for platypus again and he wanted to sit by a bank, and he was going to use that time to propose. I absolutely refused, bluntly. I said, no, I'd rather go to the hotel. And then we're walking past the (laughs) waterfall. So then let's just go up here near the hotel. I said, no, no, my feet are killing me. We've been walking around vineyards all day. I said, I just want to go back, have a bubble bath, and then have dinner. And uh, (laughs) so I did. So I scuppered both chances. So then when I got into the bath after drawing a bubble bath, he jumped in with me and then presented the ring in my face and said, do "You want to marry me?" I said, "No." <laughs> <But of> course, <laughs> I took ten more seconds later. I said, "No, jump it out." Of course, I do. That was lovely. It was a real surprise. So uh, it's so nice to commit to someone because up until then, it we were boyfriends, you know, and it was so nice to actually say, "You know what? I really love you, and I want to spend the rest of my life with you." And it's just such a lovely thing to hear, and especially. Later on in life, or what I call later on in life, after I've been through, you know, you know, nasty shits in my life, although I call them. But as I say, it takes two people, and there's two sides to every story, but um, certainly... It was a wonderful experience, and I'm very much looking forward to the wedding.
1: You must um, love him because I can't imagine you sitting without a drink in hand for four hours waiting for a platypus for anybody you didn't love. You (laughs) Ah, must have moaned like hell. You must have (laughs) moaned like hell.
2: I was, yeah, I just wanted to get back on that bike and leave. I mean, because, I mean, (laughs) as, as beautiful as it is, there's only so much staring. I mean, there was no book to read, no nothing. I mean, it was, and you have to be really quiet so you can't talk because they won't come out. They are elusive (laughs) creatures. So it was literally four hours of terror. I thought, you know, it was like some sort of Australian torture.
1: (laughs) How how did you and Jonathan meet?
2: We met uh, on the internet actually, on a a website, uh, not a website, an app called Tinder. I don't know whether you've heard of it. (laughs) It's not like any other website for gay men. for streets, I think it's different because you can just find people within a meter of you, and it's one of those apps. I think that you can just meet people for uh, sort of instant hookups. But uh, the gay side of it, or the gay side of that particular site, was sort of good because it was people looking for relationships, which was interesting. And I was sort of giving up on the whole thing. I just thought, "Um, well, I'm, I'm really actually happy, you know." And it was interesting. I was in. Nottingham, doing the Strictly Come Dancing uh, arena tour. And I got this little message, and I thought, oh, he looks cute. He looks lovely, you know, sat on a little tractor, sort of. And I thought, oh, but the farm, let's see what happens. <laughs> I said, well, he looks really nice. I thought, well, I've got an hour. I can meet him. And then so he came to from Leicester to Nottingham and met me. We had a brunch between 11 and midday which was all sorted, and uh, we just went to a cafe, met there, had a speed date for an hour, and then uh, I went and did the matinee, and I think it was a Saturday, something like that. Yeah, I went and did the matinee, and then he went back to Leicester, and then we decided to meet again and have a second date sort of a couple of weeks later, and that's what we did, and then we hooked up, and it was then he moved in and it's been like that for a couple of years now so it's been amazing really absolutely amazing it's when really you least expect it but i knew from the very outset yeah. when the double doors to the mercure hotel opened and he walked in i went oh yeah he's got a very smiley happy yes i like that yeah, I went, <laughs> oh, i'm definitely going on this okay. date.
1: take you and your tractor yeah (laughs)
2: Yeah, that was great no it was just really worked out really really well and we just got on there wasn't there wasn't any awkward silences and it's been absolute bliss ever since so very very lucky and uh, I love the
1: fact that you're still using apps like Tinder, even though everybody... I mean, the number of people that must bother your inbox because you're Craig from Strictly rather than he looks like a nice guy. Oh, um,
2: uh, yeah, well, people you know, that, just want to... That's
1: pretty... That's ballsy.
2: Yeah, people sometimes just want to talk about Strictly or they go, oh, my God, can you get me a date with Ellie Ash? Oh, oh, my God, can you get me a date with AJ? Oh, my God, can you get... You get a lot of that. I quite, I quite liked it because I like being on as myself. You know, I just went... I am Craig River Horwood, and yeah, I'm a judge on Strictly, but that's not my only job. Uh, and this is what I'm into, and this is what I like, and you know, so it was interesting. Yeah, of course you're going to get the dates that just want um, the fame, you know, like fame academy things. But um, I think, certainly, uh, I was lucky enough to meet someone that was genuine, you know, so that, that was really good. And it was um, refreshing, actually. And it was literally the day I thought, Right, I'm just gonna close these apps and meet someone at a dinner party. You know, I only I work with people at the studio and they say, what a what's your choice there? You know, a cameraman? Potentially, <laughs> or you, know, you know, it's difficult to meet people at work in that way.
1: Yeah, Craig, thank you so much for talking to me. I've loved it. I've, I've honestly, it's been so nice to catch up with you. You've never been cool, short of a thing to say. Um, the book is out and available to read on October the 1st.
2: Yeah. Is it available
1: yeah. to pre order now?
2: Yeah, you can pre order on Amazon and WH Smith and all of that, which is great. And uh, it's called dancers and dreams on diamond street darling but i I suspect it'll be called diamond street for sure in the end and let's hope we get the tv series out of it
1: (laughs) yeah that would be good wouldn't it i thought thought you'd call it tits and feathers because that was always one of your favorite expressions
2: yeah well i love a bit of tits and feathers because that's where (laughs) i sort of started my parisian and european adventure <laughs> In the tits and show. <laughs> I love you, Kate Thornton. Keep up no, the good work, darling. You're a you marvel. My
1: love, you too. <laughs> and hopefully, we'll see you very, very soon. Lots of love. That's it for this week's White Wine Question Time. As always, it's produced by me, Kate Thornton, alongside Richard Hatherell for Yahoo! UK. Editing is by Callum Goddard-Mucklow and our music is provided by Andy Bell. Don't forget, if you want to hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, we're always there and we're all ears. You can find us at White Wine QT. And if you have the time and the inclination, please do try to rate and review us. It really does help other people to find and discover the podcast. All that remains for me to say is see you next week and try to do as we always do. And please drink responsibly.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more